You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Shaw. I wish to present a lecture called Aquinas and the Life of the Mind. This was a lecture that was originally given at Ohio Dominican University in 2004, I believe. It was published in New Blackfriars magazine in London, in Oxford, on uh, 2006. The lecture begins with two citations. Let me begin. The first is from St. Thomas, and it says, Just as nature is not depriving anybody, depriving anything to man in necessary things, although she did not give him arms and hides as in other animals, because she gave him reason and hands by which he can acquire these things for himself, so also neither is nature lacking to man in necessary things even though she did not give him any principle by which he would uh, be able to obtain beatitude, for this was impossible, so he couldn't get beatitude by himself as simply as a gift. But she did give him free choice by which he could turn to God who would make him happy. For those things that are through friends are equally through ourselves, as Aristotle says in the third book of his Ethics, the end of the quote. The second quotation is from Chesterton's book on St. Thomas, where he says, That strangeness of things which is the light of all poetry and indeed in all art, is really connected with their otherness, or what is called their objectivity. What is subjective must be stale. It is exactly what is objective that is in this uh, imaginative manner strange. In the great contemplatives, and the great contemplative, the great contemplative is completely contrary, completely contrary of the false contemplative, the mystic, who looks only into his own soul, the selfish artist who shrinks from the world and lives only to his own mind. According to St. Thomas, the mind acts freely of itself, but its freedom exactly consists in finding a way out to liberty and the light of day, to reality and the land of the living. The end of the quote. In 2004, on the feast of Thomas Aquinas, I had the privilege and the pleasure of addressing a colloquium on this great saint at the University of St. Thomas at Friedrichton, New Brunswick, in Canada. 
Likewise, it is a delight and an honor this winter on the Feast of St. Thomas to be here at Ohio Dominican University in Columbus. I had actually been on this campus some quarter of a century ago. By chance, I had known Sister Camilla Malay of the Dominican Order, who was engaged in writing a history of this college before she died not too long ago. The history of a college is the memory of a college. What a college remembers, just as what we ourselves remember, pretty much defines what we are, what we choose to stand for, and what we choose to reject and ignore. Among the principal things any college with any, with any name that has Dominican in the title must above all remember uh, what it must remember is uh, Thomas Aquinas. He was a man who seems to have remembered everything he ever read and who subsequently thought about everything uh, he remembered. Indeed, he wrote about the very power of memory and its relation to thought. Aquinas knew more than he read. He also thought of a number of things no one before or after him has thought about or thought about quite so well. Yet, Thomas is a most is most famous for his defense of ordinary things, along with our natural ability to know them and to, to speak in our own words what they are. <clears throat> we can and do, like Adam, name things, whereby we can communicate with one another about the reality that's, that surrounds us, the reality uh, that is within us. Thomas Aquinas was a unique saint. He was, as I often like to recall, the only saint who was canonized merely for thinking, as Cardinal von Schoenbrunn once remarked of him. But this theme of thinking is what I want to speak to you about this morning. Why would thinking qualify for sanctity? Don't we think all the time? What, after all, is so unusual about thinking? And yet, yet we have intimations that thinking somehow brings us to the heart of things when we are, when we hear about them, uh, to hear about, about what Aristotle, who plays such a central role in Aquinas' life, defined as the first mover or God. And so we think about thinking for this reason because Aristotle defined him as thought thinking on itself, a definition that Thomas himself will respect and develop once he knows of the revelation of the Trinity, of the inner life of the Godhead. 
that the second person of the Trinity was called in Revelation the Word would not, I suspect, have overly surprised Aristotle. It was certainly intelligible to Aquinas. And yet, Thomas is always careful in speaking about what we can and cannot know uh, about God. It is impossible, he tells us, through natural reason to come to a knowledge of the trinity of persons. At first sight, we may might think this an undue restriction. It looks to be a lowering uh, to its own limits of our power of reasoning of what we are quite uh, proud of, our power of reasoning. <clears throat> but Thomas adds that those who try to prove to prove this doctrine by reason actually denigrate the faith by making its teaching simply circumscribed by the reaches of our own intellects and their mode of knowing. To claim that we can fully explain God by our own power is implicitly a claim that we are God, which, with any insight into ourselves, we are quite sure that we are not. Still, it is all right to be what we are, individual human beings, not everything, not nothing, but something. Nevertheless, Aquinas tells us that we can use our intellects to show that this central teaching about the inner Trinitarian life of God is not impossible. We can show that the arguments against it are themselves contradictory, a principle that leads us to suspect that reason and revelation are not unrelated to each other, indeed because of the relations and processions within this inner life of God, Thomas concludes that God did not produce creatures because of any lack in the Godhead, as if he needed them for his own perfection or companionship. If he had needed creation, he would be a very limited God. Rather, he produced, a, he produced creatures, including ourselves, through a love out of his own goodness. We do not exist because of some lack or loneliness in God, but because of his abundance. This fact makes our existence more, not less, glorious. On the surface, Thomas Aquinas lived a rather short, even uneventful life. He was dead by the time he was 49. He published his first treatise when he was in his early 20s. <clears throat> he was still working on the famous Summa Theologiae when he died, when he died in 1274. He completed only up to Book 3, Chapter 6, of his commentary on Aristotle's politics before he died. He did happily finish the commentaries on the ethics and the metaphysics. A commentary, incidentally, is a precise rendering of the text at hand 
so that its complete argument is present in an orderly fashion. To be able to understand and explain a text as it stands, not, only, not as we would like it to stand, but as it is, must <clears throat> be the beginning of any true education. It was said, moreover, that Aquinas could dictate three different books to his secretaries at the same time. <clears throat> My feet... <clears throat> <clears throat> I do not recommend, even with a computer, which he did not have. I have often wondered whether Aquinas could have written more than he did with a quill, with a quill, if he had the latest model Dell computer. I actually doubt it. It is difficult to know how he could have done more than he did in the relatively few years given to him. It is always worth one's effort to go to the library, locate them, and simply look at the collected works of Thomas Aquinas. For to go there to the library and page through them uh, uh, some of its many volumes is worthwhile doing just to have the sense of what he was written and of the scope and variety. Augustine <clears throat> lived some 30 years longer than Aquinas, but wrote at least as much. And yet it is said of Augustine that anyone who claims he read all of Augustine, Augustine's massive uh, works is a liar. <clears throat> While you are at it, it is equally worthwhile to take a look at the collected works of Augustine whom Aquinas cites more than any other author besides Scripture, and of Aquinas, whose Summa Theologiae alone reaches over 4,000 folio pages. It is said that if, when you are 22 years old, you start reading, start merely to read the corpus of Aquinas' work and read diligently every day for eight hours, you probably could not have read, let alone com com comprehended or written what Aquinas wrote by the time that you are 49 years old, the age at which he died. But my intention here <clears throat> is not to frighten you away from reading Aquinas because of the vastness of his output. Rather, it is to indicate why it is not only possible to read him, but delightful, moving. There is no intellectual pleasure, I think, quite like reading and understanding even one article in the works of Thomas Aquinas. To learn to do so is worth, is worth your whole college career. Not to know him, I suspect, is equivalent to being educated in something, but not precisely in everything, in the parts, but not in the whole. Indeed, not learning to read Aquinas is to deprive ourselves of the shortest and most concise avenue to those truths 
for which alone our minds were created in the first place. Aquinas did live in some interesting places, places which we can still visit, in fact. He was born across from the great abbey of Monte Cassino between Rome and Naples. Early on, he was a student at the same abbey. Later, he joined the Dominican order. He was in Paris, in Cologne, in Orvieto, Rome, and in Naples. He died in a beautiful Cistercian abbey called Fosanova on his way to a council of the church. In those years, I believe, the Dominican friars had a rule that their members on going from place to place had to walk. I believe Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, Aquinas' great teacher, was nicknamed something like Boots because of his this tradition of walking. One hesitates to call this rule inspired, but it is indeed a good way to see Europe or any place else, namely on foot. Indeed, in some sense, you don't see a place until you see it, as it were, uh, on your feet. Particularly, I suspect, places like Paris, Cologne, Orvieto, Naples, and certainly Rome. Thomas was said to be quite a large man, at least the size of a tackle on the Ohio State Buckeyes football team. Still, the walking everywhere probably was not formally designed to keep the 13th century Dominican in shape, though it may have had per accidents as Thomas would say, that happy effect, which we moderns <clears throat> build uh, so many gyms and exercise machines to achieve in lieu of walking. The alternative in the 13th century to going uh, to Paris uh, from Naples on foot was not on the Airbus or the Rapido train in the European uh, railroad system, or a comfortable Mercedes-Benz sedan. But it was on a donkey or a horse. Such an animal transport, this animal transport could make a trip faster, no doubt, uh, than walking, whether more comfortable, I uh, leave it to your imagination. <clears throat> In the first passage I cited in the beginning, we note that <clears throat> nature gave us reason and hands instead of the more substantial claws or hides with which to fight or protect ourselves. Notice it is assumed that we, like animals, may need to protect this, uh, to protect this thing to defend ourselves. In a definition of man going back to his uh, philosophy, going back to his philosophical master Aristotle, man is said to be the being in the universe who alone has the com combination of mind and hands. Without mind, hands <clears throat> would be merely claws or flippers. But without hands, minds 
could not get out of themselves into the world uh, to make or do anything. It is a shrewd, vivid definition. The, the, the purpose of claws and hands in animals is to defend, protect, and provide for themselves. Human beings can figure out how to do this a very, this very same thing even better by the use of their reason and hands. Already here, we have an instance of God expecting us to do things for ourselves. We might call it the philosophy, the philosophical basis of entrepreneurship, of economics even. The world would not be more perfect, contrary to what we might at first think, if everything were done for us in the, from the beginning. Notice also that this passage, in this passage, Aquinas is answering an implied objection of great force and influence. Somehow the objection reads, whatever caused man to be the kind of being he is, God, let us say, didn't, God didn't give us what he needed, what we needed to be the kind of being we are. What was necessary to accomplish, he didn't give us what was necessary to accomplish our purpose in the world. Clearly, this claim is an attack on the Creator. He did not give us what we needed to accomplish our purpose. He was inadequate, unjust, and niggardly. Thus, since we needed to accomplish our purpose, uh, we are uh, deprived of what we need when we needed. Nothing is our fault, therefore. So we, since God didn't give us what we needed, it's not our fault if anything happens to us. Even worse, the accusation proceeds, we are deprived of what we need besides not having claws and, ha- and hides. God did not give us any principle by which we could easily achieve complete happiness by our own power. It is a passage like this where Aquinas is most succinct, most amazing. First, he makes the totally laconic remark that it would be impossible for God to do this. The kind of happiness for which we are created is quite beyond our natural power to give. In other words, we are given more than we deserve. Are we, therefore, to despair because we do not have this principle under our own control? Not at all. And why not? Because Aquinas states, we have been given a power of free choice by which we can turn to God. We are not, in other words, lacking in what, uh, uh, as we might at first sight think. Why does that solve the problem of why we are not given if necessary, uh, in necessary things, that is, in the most necessary things, a principle of our own happiness? To answer, Aquinas simply takes a brief citation from Aristotle's treatment of friendship in the ethics. If a friend does something for us, or we do something for him, we can consider that it is done by and for us. The possibility of this 
happening has to do has to this happening has to do with the incarnation, in which Christ said in John's uh, Last Supper that he no longer considered us servants but friends. Thus, nature is not incomplete because something is lacking to us. From these seminal passages, we can conclude both that there are things we must do for ourselves and things we must receive from our friends, including our divine friends. And since we are free, we must choose to receive them as we choose to accept what our friends uh, do for us in the first place. Who else, I ask you, but Aquinas tells us of these things so briefly and so insightfully? Let us now take a look at the second citation, the one from Chesterton's biography of Aquinas. This wonderful book of Chesterton has caused many a good philosopher to despair. How could an English journalist like Chesterton, with no apparent academic uh, learnings, who seems to have skimmed over a few books on Aquinas and looked at perhaps the Summa, have ever managed to tell us what Aquinas was, uh, what he was about? And yet, few books do it better. Indeed, later on, I will mention a couple of books on Aquinas that might help you to get started in discovering him. In fact, I will mention them right now. They are, besides Chesterton's own book, two books of uh, two books of Joseph Pieper, a guide to uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and the Silence of Saint Thomas. Also, any book almost of Ralph McInerney will be a help. A.D. Sertayange's book, The Intellectual Life, is quite helpful, and Peter Kreef's book, Summa of the Summa, is most helpful. Chesterton begins by pointing out the fact that things in reality are strange, as he calls them. He calls them strange, calls this strangeness the light of all poetry. What does he mean? He means that the reality, the being of what is not ourselves, is simply there in, to be discovered. <clears throat> what we find is not some Cartesian projection of our inner mind onto things. Things are received into our minds, but after our manner of knowing them. Our minds are capable of receiving what is into ourselves, into our mind. By simply being ourselves, we are in our, we are in our proper knowledge of what is not ourselves. So if I know something else, I know myself and something more than myself. We are concerned with the otherness of things. Things are received into our minds, but after the manner of our knowing them, in other words. Our minds do have the capacity of reaching the what is. By simply being ourselves, we are 
receiving something else from outside of ourselves. <clears throat> Chatterton next compares the fact that they are simply out there and we can know them. Uh, he, he compares them with the general notion of knowledge. He compares the true contemplative who beholds what is with the mystic who looks only into his own soul or the the selfish artist who shrinks from the world and lives only for his own mind. This latter is a sentence full of blunt uh, philosophical controversy. It is true that we ourselves also are created things. Our self-reflection reaches to our, our awareness that we are not the ground of our own being. Our own minds are not complete if they only know themselves and not what is not ourselves also. Chesterton adds marvelously that our minds are made to act freely. But this freedom does not mean that we in our freedom create the world, as so much modern philosophy says, uh, and our autonomous heads. Rather, it means that we are free to direct ourselves to what is, but we are not determined to do so. We are to use our liberty to get out of ourselves and to see what is there, to wonder about what, what it is that is not ourselves. This is how Chesterton used the word strangeness to emphasize that what we encounter is never what we could have uh, previously imagined by our own powers. In a Christmas letter I once received from a doctor in Mount Vernon, Ohio, I noticed that on the left-hand border of this letter he had placed a photograph of Thomas Aquinas. Underneath this photo are the following words from Aquinas, quote, The greatest good that one can do to his neighbor is to lead him to the truth, end of the quote. I despair of finding the exact source of this citation from St. Thomas. I confess looking through the question on, in the Summa on truth. However, it does not matter. This is certainly St. Thomas. It is something that I want to comment on since truth is the purpose of thinking. Thinking for thinking's sake without a measure or standard that tells us whether a thought is true or not is simply a kind of vapid uh, chaos of thought too uh, fuzzy uh, to manifest any order or any meaning. Today, no doubt, this emphasis on truth is an absolute, uh, absolutely countercultural position. <clears throat> truth is said to be our enemy. Its claims divide us. Its very existence is a sign of fanaticism. The truth will not make us free. No, our freedom makes the truth. Chesterton had it quite wrong, it is said. Freedom 
it is said, is not limited and measured by what is. So understood, of course, truth makes no claim on us. We need not claim or need not take into consideration in our, in our doing what we do, whatever we do, if there is no truth. We insist on being accepted, not judged, whatever it is that we do. And yet, we have Aquinas here talk, telling us that the greatest service we can do to our neighbor is not to uh, lead him, is to lead him to the truth. It is not giving him a cup of water. The two activities are not uh, contradictory, of course. Still, before we can give anybody a cup of water, we have to know what water is. We have to know that the water that we give is drinkable and not poisonous. We have to know the truth, in other words, about water. And we have to act on this truth, lest we be not free. Now, Aquinas was quite insightful when it came to the question of how to lead someone to the truth. The Summa itself was written precisely for beginners. Aquinas was a common sense and a common man philosopher. While he discussed almost every topic imaginable, he had the marvelous facility of breaking the matter up into human and human-sized bites, as it were. He wrote so that the reader could he wrote so that the reader could understand step by step what he was reading. This is why, in Aquinas, one can find some of his most remarkable insights. In brief, two of the sec of the uh, second of the um, sentence answers to objection. So when he gave his objection, we can find some of the great um, uh, insights of St. Thomas. In reading Aquinas, we always have to um, have the reality of uh, the, the reality to be overwhelmed uh, by uh, something we never thought of. Joseph Pieper's um, books are full of these brief, uh, deeply penetrating citations from Aquinas. I think especially of his book, The Truth of All Things. Let me take, for instance, this concise answer to an objection to a question entitled, Whether Truth is a Part of Justice. The objection stated that justice is to render another what is due, the classical definition of justice. But if we give truth to someone, it does not seem like a true debt, like owing him money. And therefore, the objection concludes, truth is not part of justice. Here is how Aquinas went about answering this objection. First, he recalled that man is a social animal. That he is, that is, he must live in society and in the polity, as Aristotle had said. <clears throat> it is natural for him to do so. 
But a human being owes to another that which is necessary to live in society. <clears throat> Obviously, men cannot live with each other in society unless they trust one another and manifesting the truth to one another. The fact that someone speaks what is true does not seem other than to render a debt to him. In other words, telling the truth and uh, trusting in the words spoken are the basis of our living together and therefore uh, what we uh, owe to one another so that uh, the, what we live in society because we can assume or presume that somebody who is talking to us is telling us the truth as he sees it. <clears throat> Aquinas, as I intimated, seems at first sight to differ in emphasis from Plato, who was dubious of words themselves, especially written words. We recall, of course, that the disputation, the primary form of discourse in the medieval university, was itself oral. Issues of honesty, integrity, logic, and will are usually much more visible in oral argument than in the written word. But Aquinas did not look on the admitted strangeness of things as something that hindered him from any attempt to explain them. Quite the opposite. The whole structure of Aquinas's work was presupposed uh, to the proposition that it is possible to make things clear and to know, as at least in outline, to know uh, what... Uh, of what could not be known. So the very fact that we try to know is to make clear what we don't know. Aquinas is a philosopher of light, not of hiddenness. <clears throat> Yet he does not ever doubt that there are things beyond the human intellect's power to know. With Aristotle, he thinks that knowing as much as we can about divine things is the highest task that we can be about. He thinks, in fact, that the desire to know the truth of things, and indeed finally to know them after the manner of our limited uh, being, is why we exist in the first place. Thomas Aquinas is a man who spent his life thinking. The purpose of thinking is to know the truth of what is. We do not make what is not ourselves. Thus, we find it in reality a strangeness and a brightness, a wonder about what is there and why it is there. We can act freely only if we know the truth. We do not will truth to be truth, but we find it there as if it has in itself some being, some order. We affirm what is but we can choose not to know the truth, and we can choose not to know the truth. That's possible to do that. Uh, though it is not possible to, uh, in fact, to act unless there is some shred of truth left in what we do. We can and should, moreover, know what is not true. Facing the truth of things is both our glory and our burden. So to know that something is not true is itself paradoxically uh, a good thing. 
In an old Peanuts series from November 1952, Lucy and Charlie Brown are playing marbles. In the first series, Lucy yells happily, I won again, I won again. The reason she tells uh, Charlie is because of his last stupid move, stupid play. She adds uh, uh, yet again, I, I, I won again. And she asks Charlie, aren't you happy for me? In the next sequence, the winning continues. She tells Charlie that she can beat him 3,000 times. Charlie is embarrassed and says, rat. Lucy naturally accuses him of uh, being a poor, a poor loser. But at last, in the final passage, Charlie wins a game. He can hardly believe it. He throws up his hands and says, I've never been so happy in my life. But Lucy tells him, I just let you win because I felt sorry for you. This completely deflates Charlie, but Lucy consoles him. Quote, it's always better to know the truth. End of the quote. But the fact is that it is indeed, as Lucy says, always better to know the truth. And why, in conclusion, is it's so difficult to know the truth. In part, it is because our lives are not in order so that we cannot hear the truth because we know that it requires us to change our lives and we don't want to do so. So to cover ourselves, we create our own truths. But another reason is that we do not go about studying uh, for the truth in the right way. St. Thomas was aware of both of these problems. But on this occasion, let me say some final words about why we might find learning the important things so difficult. In the Summa of St. Thomas, it is famous for being, as I said, directed to beginners and not for the already formed, uh, as were his other works, like the Questiones Disputate. At the very beginning of the Summa, Aquinas has three brief bits of advice for students who are confused and overwhelmed by the difficulties of knowing, not understanding how one goes about learning. He assumes, of course, that the first step is, as we have seen, the will to know the truth. Nothing can replace this. We have free wills and we can direct our minds to what we want or away from what is before us to something that will protect us from the whole truth which we do not want to accept. In the beginning, Aquinas tells us that a doctor of Catholic truth does not direct himself to the already learned, learned alone, to the, those who are uh, most accomplished, not to just them, but he also, that's the doctor, the, the, the learned man, but also to the beginners, to teach them things that are congruent to uh, those beginning their, their education. Several things can impede learning. The first thing that causes difficulty, he tells us in the second paragraph of the Summa, 
is the multiplication of useless questions, articles, and arguments. Since the Summa, which is which is in uh, to follow itself has some 10,000 questions, articles, and arguments, we presume that the word useless here is not opposed to the word useful. I mean, Aquinas does say many, many things. The fact that many questions are necessary is not a sign of fault, but a sign of real strangeness and abundance of things to be known. But still, the beginning student is happy to have an orderly and manageable presentation of important issues. The second reason for difficulty to learning is because the order of the discipline under question is not treated. Rather, what is given to the student follows the order of the books assigned to the, uh, to be studied or some current event that draws popular attention. Instead of reading Aquinas or Aristotle themselves, who will form the mind in a proper order, students read relevant books chosen for some current issue, but devoid of the uh, broader context in which the consideration uh, should be uh, could be meaningful. I tell my students, don't major in current events. And I say, don't just study current events. When you do that, the only thing you'll know is what happened yesterday. Likewise, do not waste your time in college studying ethical or daily moral and current events and think you are studying ethics or aquinas. Finally, from the frequent repetition, there will arise in the souls of uh, listeners a certain boredom and confusion. This, of course, is the reason why we should mostly read good or great books, such as the Summa itself. Most universities today are so structured that they have no time for reading Aristotle or Aquinas because they are boring their young students with confusing books and questions out of context and lies about what is really important and what the mind is for. In short, to cite Lucy, it is always better to know the truth. It will be noticed that in reading the Summa, at every step of the way, Aquinas tells us, tells the beginning student just where he has been and where he is going and what exactly he is treating of in the first place in the text before him. This text is always brief, systematic, intelligible, logical. At the beginning of the second question of the Summa, Aquinas gives the beginner a brief survey of what all three large books of the Summa contain. Remember that these books contain 4,006 pages. This is how he explains the structure of the 4,006 pages. The principal intention of this sacred doctrine is to treat the knowledge of God and this not only in accordance as he is in himself, but also according to what is uh, proportioned to the creature. To express this doctrine, 
we intend in the first book to treat of God, in the second book of the movement of the rational creature to God, and finally in the third book to treat of Christ, who insofar as he is man is the way for us to tend to God. End of the quote. Thus, from the very beginning, we know what we are about and how we will proceed. We are never intellectually lost in the Summa. Consequently, it is no small thing to think and to think well and properly to think the truth. Truth is to the judgment, is lies in the judgment, as Aquinas says, in the judgment of what is and what is not, whether it is or is not. All this, all else depends on our ability to know the truth and to act upon it, to speak of it uh, to others as if we are telling them about a reality that we, within, uh, with them, along with them, objectively uh, encounter outside of ourselves. The strangeness of things include, includes the effort to come to terms with this very strangeness. We do not, by thinking, as Aristotle said, as we as say, we do this by thinking, as we come to terms with these things, as Aristotle said. So let me conclude now with four quotations which we have seen before, and I will, I will present them simply as the conclusion and summary of this paper, of this lecture. First, quote, Nature did not give man claws and hides, like the other animals, because she gave him reason by which he can acquire these things by himself. The second quotation. According to St. Thomas, the mind acts freely of itself, but its freedom exactly consists in finding a way out to liberty and the light of the day. The third one, it is always better to know the truth. And the fourth one, the greatest good one can do for his neighbor is to lead him to the truth. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.